Good morning. Welcome to ABC. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for our online service. My name is Jeff, and we have a ton of exciting things coming up at ABC as we head into fall, uh, ramping back up our ministry calendar and schedule. Um, you might be familiar with some of the ongoing groups we have, like women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies, the care groups we have, like divorce care um, and uh, grief share groups. But this fall, we're also starting um, a round of topical short-term groups. So they're eight-week groups focusing on a specific topic. We're doing a class on finance. Uh, we're doing a group on uh, called Life's Healing Choices, doing a group on marriage. A um, lot of options there. You can see those on our website if you go to abcchurch.org and you go to the groups page. Um, there's some great options for you to jump in so that you can experience community, circle up with some other believers, process through some of the things that you're dealing with in your life in this season. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Also, at the end of the month, uh, we are kicking off a year of ministry in Celebrate Recovery by doing a Come See CR evening where you can learn what Celebrate Recovery is all about. You can see a bit of their program and um, sort of experience how that ministry uh, happens on a weekly basis. That's happening on September 30th. And next month in October, we are having a men's retreat. Uh, guys heading up to Hume Lake on October 14th to 17th. If you're looking for a way to connect with other men and get a weekend away and spend some time just studying God's word together and fellowship, um, we'd love to have you join us. Give us a call at the church office or find some more info on the website about that. Um, we're real excited to get away uh, for a men's retreat this year. That's October 14th to 17th. Finally, this morning, uh, we're really excited to be kicking off a brand new teaching series through the book of Titus. And Pastor Jake is going to open up Titus with us this morning, and we're going to see what God has to share with us. Well, we're starting our series in the book of Titus. Our title for this series is Guidance for Godliness, and we're all really excited about it. We all want the world to be a better place, but in order for that to happen, we need to be better. And by better, in a Christian worldview, that means to grow in godliness. That's what I mean when I say I want to be better. When I say that, I mean that I want to be more joyful. I want to be more hopeful. I want to be more loving, more peaceful. Ultimately, I want to be more like the good and the perfect characteristics of God himself. And so we'll see in the book of Titus, in order to grow in godliness, what we need is guidance. We need relationship with each other. And it's in those guiding relationships, what we call discipleship, where God changes us and therefore he changes the world around us. So we're going to start just with the first four verses of the book of Titus. I get to do kind of an intro uh, week, but I'm going to do a lot of just overview and summary of the book of Titus uh, with a couple of sort of umbrella thoughts over the whole book. Um, and then close with just one specific thought regarding these four verses uh, specifically. So let's uh, open your, your Bibles if you have them or, uh, or grab your phone or whatever or just listen as I read. This is Titus chapter 1, 1 through 4. This is how Paul intros his letter to Titus. He says, Paul, a servant of God. He always kind of introduces himself. So Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And then he addresses who he's writing to. He says, To Titus, my true child, 
in a common faith. Remember that line right there to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's just the introduction. That's the, the, the address to who he's writing to in his own introduction. He always includes these, you know, three or four verse introductions where he says, Paul, here's who I am. Here's sort of what I've done. Here's who I've been called by God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, here's who it's to. Um, but let's kind of zoom out. We're going to do kind of a big um, overview of the book of Titus because I kind of want us to just be excited about the book together and to sort of get a grasp on, on what it's about, who are the main people, what are some of the main themes. So just some context on this. And a lot of this is largely pulled from a resource called the Bible Project. Um, I would point you there. It's super, super helpful. Very insightful uh, resource. So first, who was Titus? Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus. For years, he had been a trusted co-worker of Paul. There's mentions otherwhere in the New Testament, some of Paul's writings, where he mentions Titus by name, saying that he was there uh, for this instance and this instance and at this time and this time. So now Paul, obviously Titus was someone he trusted. Now Paul was assigning him to lead the church on Crete. Crete was an island off the coast of Greece. Something to note about the island of Crete, it was notoriously wicked, like famously evil. Think kind of kind of a Corinth vibe. We've done studies through the book of First and Second Corinthians. So Cretan culture was notoriously wicked. There was a phrase that would work its way around uh, that area of the world. They, they would call people kretizo, which meant to be a liar, coming from the word Crete or Cretan. So to be a Cretan, to be kretizo was to be a liar, was just to be wicked. But here's the thing that Paul saw. Crete had many strategic harbors, it was perfect for a network of churches where there could be these landing spots from here to there to here to there. There was already some movement of Christianity there, but somehow it came under some corrupt leaders who were teaching the wrong things and doing the wrong things. So a lot of the book is to correct that corruption and to provide hope for the social and familial breakdown that was coming as a result. Uh, let's dive into some structure of the book. I'll say a couple words about each of these things, but we'll just get a really good overview of, of what's coming up. It's a short and sweet book. It's to the point. It's three chapters long. But I break it down into four parts in the book structure. One is the introduction. Two is Titus's tasks. Three is a vision for a new household. Paul gives to Titus for the sake of the church in Crete. This vision for a new Christian household. And then four is a vision for a new humanity. So start with one, the introduction. That's what we just read. Chapter one, verses one through four. A couple key themes there is that he says, God is a God who never lies. God is faithful and true. Now this is huge because it, it would have just blown the minds of Cretan Christians because Cretan Christians at the time, they had assimilated their ideas about Jesus with some Greek gods, specifically Zeus. So Cretan said that Zeus was born there on the island. It was like this big point of pride. Zeus was, like the great mighty Zeus was born on our island of Crete. And they would tell stories and tales about his underhanded character, that he was a liar and a seducer. That's who he was. But now Paul's writing to Titus. He says, God is totally different than that. He is faithful. He is true. He is the God who never, ever lies. That would be a real change for Cretan believers. Next thing, 
The second part of the structure of the book is Titus's tasks. If you look at chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, uh, Paul just immediately gives Titus a few things he needs to do. Okay, we need to get this, this island in order. Well, first things first, we need to get this church in order. And for that to happen, we need there to be good, strong leaders. That was one of his first tasks. And we'll hear more about that in the next couple weeks. So appoint new leaders. So there were Jewish Cretan Christians who were demanding circumcision and Torah observance, which we read other places in uh, the New Testament. That's one of, I mean, that's a big um, rallying point for Paul. Is he saying, no, we're not bound to this anymore. We don't have to just perfectly observe the Torah or the law or the circumcision anymore. There's freedom in Christ. So Paul's saying they need to stop laying this burden on people. It's unnecessary. They don't need it. And it's going to stop people from coming to Christ or it's going to convolute their relationship with Christ. So these corrupt leaders need to stop. Titus needs to teach the true good news about Jesus and replace these corrupt leaders with leaders of humility and integrity and dignity and honor. Third, we get into Paul's vision for a new household. And we'll take some more time here as well as on the new humanity. So vision for a new household. If you go to chapter 2, 1 through 15, after he says there needs to be some reform in this church, there needs to be some change, some new life and some new order breathed into it. Now what that's going to create is a new household, new family units. Here's the culture at the time. The household systems of Crete were completely compromised. And so God's word was discredited. People made evil accusations about Christianity, and the good news of the gospel wasn't compelling to anybody because it wasn't bearing any fruit. If it was being preached at all, if the true gospel of Jesus was being preached at all, it certainly wasn't bearing any fruit. Christian marriages looked just like non-Christian marriages. Older men and older women were constantly drunk and bickering with each other. Younger men and women were aimless and self-indulgent. They were constantly sleeping around and not committing to marriage with each other. Christian husbands and wives and daughters and sons, even though they were in the institution of a home, institution of a family, they were just as broken and unloving as all of the other family units around them who didn't claim the name of Christ. See, these family units, they claimed the name of Christ but they still served the same gods of lust and self-indulgence and self-preservation as everyone else. The family unit in Crete was completely fractured. The problem was that the church was zero help because the leaders were corrupt. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were teaching. Families were breaking down and the church was zero help. So Paul writes to correct the crooked family systems and then to cast vision for what it could be like essentially saying the gospel has to prove itself in the family. It has to change who you are as a husband and as a wife and as a son and as a daughter and a brother. And it says it has to change who you are as a family. He gives this vision. He says, what if there were older men and women of integrity and honor whose righteousness would leave a legacy and bless generations to come? What if that were the case? What if there were younger men and women of purpose and commitment no longer aimlessly wandering through life, chasing cheap thrills and self-indulgent highs wherever they can find it, but giving themselves to godliness, to service, to doing good, to finding good jobs and doing honest work and pursuing good, healthy, honoring relationships. What if there was a family culture that was so radically loving 
and culturally subversive that even in first century Greco-Roman world, they would say that even slaves get dignity and equity. You'll see that in a chapter or two. Even slaves get dignity and equity. That would have been completely revolutionary to see them not as property, but as people and even members of the family. That was a Christian idea. See, Christian families, Paul's vision, what he's casting here, see, Christian families are compelling when they look culturally similar to the world around them, but they're based on a completely different value system and devoted to a different God. That is a vision for a new household, a new family. And then the fourth part of the book structure is a vision for a new humanity. Because what starts in the household would lead to all humanity. The family unit was fractured and corrupt from matriarch and patriarch to newborn baby. And therefore, the culture at large was going to be fractured and corrupt inside and outside the walls of whatever church movement might have existed. The Christian leaders were careless and abusive, just like other leaders. Christian business owners exploited their employees, just like non-Christian business owners. Christian employees were just as money-grabbing and self-centered as the world around them. See, Christian citizens were just as evil and bent out of shape and, and notoriously wicked as everyone else around them in this broken Cretan culture. But again, Paul cast this vision. What if Christians, followers of Jesus, what if followers of Jesus were ideal citizens, peaceable, generous, known for the common good, known for just doing what's good for humanity? What if the citizens of God's kingdom were the best possible citizens of their earthly city? That's the vision Paul gives us. And their source of power would be the transforming love of the three-in-one God that they've received. Their spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus would declare God's grace to the world and change the society around them. See, Paul gives us this vision for humanity that doesn't just succumb to the Cretan culture around them, but they would be actually transformed by the grace of God and they would live accordingly. Okay, that's a, a, a kind of a rough overview summary of the structure of the book, but just camp right there for a second on those two things. So Paul gives a vision for a new household, family units, and he gives a vision for a new humanity. Basically saying the gospel has to prove itself both in the family unit and in the public square. The gospel has to prove itself. So, so two questions there, or, or two thoughts really. One is that it poses an important question. So the gospel has to prove itself. And that's, that's a theme we're going to hit throughout the book of Titus. The gospel has to, has to have proof in the pudding, you know, as it were. If all of the overtly Christian things about your life weren't visible to anyone, is there anything about you that would clearly communicate, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus? Let me explain. If all of the overtly Christian things about you, so the fact that you go to church and maybe your neighbors know that you are at church on Sunday morning. So, so it's one just overtly Christian thing. Or you send your kids to camp every summer. Or you're wearing an ABC t-shirt or whatever it is. If all the obviously Christian things about you were not visible, is there anything about you that would clearly communicate, I am a Christian? That's what it means. This phrase he says in the first four verses that we have knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. What you know to be true about God must change who you are. It must change how you operate in this world, how you work, how you love, how you do parenting, how you do friendship, 
how you do romance, how you do finance, how you do absolutely everything. Everything must change. Is there anything about you that would clue them in that I'm a follower of Jesus? I've had this moment before. I feel like I've had kind of this conversation a number of times over the years where there's someone maybe out in the community where I kind of know them, but just a little bit. And, and we've never talked about, you know, the fact that I'm a Christian. Um, and I don't know if they're a believer, but I have a hunch that they are. You know, and so I find myself talking to someone, maybe I say to my wife or I say to someone here at work or whatever, I say, I bet they're a believer. I bet she's a believer. I bet he's a believer. You ever have that moment? You don't know for sure because it's never come up. You say, I bet she's a believer. And, and what are the reasons? Because you've seen them display an incredible amount of patience before, or you've seen them just be really, really kind and warm. Or you've seen them do something that took a lot of integrity, even something difficult, or they made a hard decision that was the right decision. Or maybe you've seen them display a pattern of selflessness and service to the people around them over the course of time. So you just have thought, man, I, I don't know for sure. I don't know if they go to church, but I, I think they're probably a believer. So I've had that thought before. And sometimes, honestly, then I think, would they think that of me? they they don't know that I am I, you know they don't know I'm a Christian they, they don't know I'm a pastor like honestly I think this from time to time if they don't know I'm a Christian or even a pastor would they ever guess like would that would they ever be clued into that would that ever even cross their mind that according to me my life has been radically transformed by Jesus but would they ever guess that that's the case see that's part of what Paul's getting at in Titus that the gospel has to prove itself. There has to be fruit. There has to be. And in Crete, there wasn't any. There was no reason to believe that the gospel could change anything because Christian families and Christian citizens were no different than any others. Christian workers and bosses and leaders and politicians were no different than non-Christian workers and bosses and leaders and politicians. See, for you and me, listen to this. People can't see that God has changed your life unless your life changes. People cannot see that God has changed your life unless your life changes. And then unless your life looks different, we're gonna see that again and again as Paul urges Titus to urge the church in Crete to live holy lives, to live godly lives. Can I just urge us right now to, to live holy lives, godly lives, so that whether you're wearing an ABC t-shirt or not, there's, some, there's a level of joy that you exhibit to your neighbors and your teammates and your coworkers. There's a level of patience that you exhibit. There's a kind of integrity and doing what's right when it's hard and when no one's watching. There's something about this so that people around you could maybe be clued in. Maybe they're the people saying, I don't know for sure, but I think they're a believer. You know, I, I, I think there's something different. I would bet their life has been changed by Jesus because their life is different. Because listen, if the gospel of Jesus doesn't have the power to change lives and redeem families and transform communities, then it's just a really inconvenient thing to believe, you know, if you say you believe it. That's, that's one thought, one question. Second, in this, um, uh, these thoughts of, of a vision for a new household, vision for a new humanity. Second, not only does it pose that question, but notice the flow of Paul's writing here. And I really want to dig in here for a minute. I think the book of Titus itself says something about the order in which God brings transformation. And we'll throw this up. It's God's order of transformation. And then I'll explain it. One is church. 
two is family, and three is society. See, first he changes the church, then that changes families, and then that changes society. If you just look at the order that Paul's writing in, and I don't know that, that he's doing this intentionally, but it just makes a lot of sense. So Paul's writing tight is saying, we, th- something needs to change here. We need to do something. And look in, listen to the order he, he goes in. He says, first, we need to get the church in order. In order for, to do that, we need some good leaders. Okay, church is in order. Next, we need to talk about the families because those come from being shepherded well within a church. And then we're talking about just citizens of our community, of this society. Church, family, then society. And it shows us this, that a discipling church makes strong families that change society. A discipling church makes strong families that change society. That above and beyond any sociopolitical or government influence, society is better when families are strong and families are strong when the church is shepherding them well and it's not the other way around that implication there we always crave like institutional church changing institutional society we hear that all the time right i mean man our church needs to do something about this our church needs to whatever have a have a hand in this fight have a dog in this fight we need to do something about this societal thing and we're kind of, as, as a staff of pastors and leaders, we always kind of go, yeah, you're, you're the church. You should do something about that. Yeah, you should, you should go do that. We're always craving the institutional church to change institutional society, but it's not about that. It's about the people that make up the church doing something in society. And I say this to encourage you as a parent, as a friend, as a brother, as a sister, a daughter, a husband, a mother, the change that you want to see in society It doesn't start out there. It doesn't start with just going and pushing for social change. That's the argument here, I think, in the book of Titus. It starts in here. It starts right here. In here, in church, with you and me. And that's not at all to dissuade civic engagement. It's not like this either-or thing. It's just a heart difference. To know that you have solid ground and hope for your family and for your children that's more transcendent than whatever happens at a legislative level. Let me say it this way. Hospitals weren't created because the right politicians were in the right seats. They were created because the people of God saw a need and they filled it. They saw a void and they stepped out in faith and followed God's leadership and they filled it. Same for higher education, for colleges, for universities. that, That was a Christian invention. The people of God seeing potential there and following it. Same for orphan care, migrant care. The first adoptions were by Christians back in in the Roman culture where uh, where abortions were even more rampant than they are now. And and the first Christians realizing that's not okay. These babies need to live. And they would just go out and they would take them and they would bring them home and adopt them. The first adoption agency was because of Christians stepping up and and following God's leadership. Not because of anything political or governmental. It's not like things were happening on the right platforms out there somewhere. It's that the people of God in here, you and me, we were following the leadership of God and doing what needed to be done. Racial unity. Man, the the Church of Christ was the first place. There was no paradigm for people who looked different and sounded different. Every tribe and every tongue and every nation. There was no paradigm for that in any religious context ever before the Church of Christ was born. The body of Christ was born. 
The people of God are God's plan for social justice. Show me a movement for the common good of humanity. And there's a good chance that it started with God's people following God's leadership. God's people, the church, wherein families are shepherded and grown and led to be stronger and better. And then that flows into society being changed. See, it's, it's not this. It's not push for social change so then our families can breathe and then our churches can relax. It's not that. It's church, be obedient to God's leadership. Families, be shepherded and grown within the church. And then watch as society is blessed and transformed from the inside out. First church, then family, and then society. Now, when Christians are out of order on that, at worst, we will misplace our energy and our focus, we'll major on minors, we'll mislead and mismanage, we'll ruin our witness, and we'll damage people. But at best, we'll just be really frustrated with the world for just being the world. Trying so hard to push for society to change and it's just not changing and we're just frustrated and the world is just being the world. First, the church changes and then families get stronger and better and then society changes. So, uh, summing up, wrap up the, the book of Titus. He's just saying the church is to become agents of transformation within their communities. And Paul to Titus, kind of saying it's not going to happen through waging a culture war or by assimilation to the Cretan way of life. Don't give in to that. But wisely participate in Cretan culture. Reject what's corrupt, but also embrace what's good in the culture around you. Learn to live peaceably and to devote yourselves to teaching of Jesus and to the common good. That will show the beauty of the message about our saving God. That's all overview and intro to the book of Titus. I'm, I'm thrilled for that. I hope you are too. But one more thought. What do we take home today? There's this one line in the intro I want to leave us with. So kind of back up to verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1. This one line I want to leave us with that I think sets the tone for the rest of the instruction in the book. Paul calls Titus his true child in a common faith. That has to give you pause for a second. My true child in a common faith. I, I just, I, I can't help but think that Paul was so intentional in calling Titus. I mean, this is an incredibly meaningful title. Uh, one of my thoughts is like, think of all the other guys who Paul had relationships with, and they never got this like sweet, endearing title the same way that Titus did. I bet they're like, oh, what the heck, Paul? I mean, what are we? But I think there's something special about Paul's relationship to Titus. And beyond that, I think it's a powerful phrase because one, it answers the question, what does a discipling church look like? So I'm saying a discipling church makes strong families that change society, but what does a discipling church look like? It looks like this. It looks like Paul and Titus right here. Put a healthy church under a microscope and you see a bunch of Pauls and Tituses. People who are not related by blood, but claiming to be related in faith and claiming that that connection runs even deeper than their bloodlines do. That's what you see in a discipling church. And in a way, it tells you everything you need to know about the instructions that follow. It tells you everything that, that Paul says to Titus is the instruction of a father to a son. And only in the context of that relationship does that all find its proper place. From a father to a son, 
from someone who loves the other person. It's not just logistics. It's not just some cold strategy or these rigid expectations without a relationship. This is Paul casting a vision for what's possible from one disciple of Jesus to another in this relationship between Paul and Titus, this relationship that we call discipleship. It's like Paul is just saying, Titus, I'm saying all of this. What what is to follow? The next three chapters, I'm saying this because I love you, because I trust you, because I believe in you, because I believe God has great plans for you and for the church in Crete, because I see what's possible here. And I'm in this with you. I'm here for you. See, the societal change that Paul longs for in Crete He knows that that can't happen without his relationship to Titus. And the change that Titus wants to see can't happen without his relationship to Paul. The change that they want to see in society can't happen without the discipling relationship that they have with each other, within the body of Christ. And that's where I want to land. Because can I just suggest that the same is true for you and me? The same is true for us today. Think about our county. Think about our community, our society locally here. Here's the, the fact is that ABC can't have a campus at Diablo. And we can't have a campus at Atascadero State Hospital or the high school or the middle school or Sierra Vista or Twin City. Like we can't have campuses where there's this like overwhelming, obvious, overt Christian presence at these places. But what we have is relationship with each other. What we have is a, is a connected web of discipled relationships with each other, a church full of people who are discipling and being discipled together. What we have is families that are coming and leaving stronger and better than they were before, equipped and empowered to be agents of change in our society. That's what we have. And the change we want to see in our community, it can't happen by any one of us going and changing those places, but by us thriving in our discipleship relationships with each other, growing with each other to be more like Jesus together, leaving stronger than we were before to be agents of change in our society. See, we all want the world to be better. We all want society to be better. We all want our community to be better. But in order to do that, we need guidance for godliness. We need to grow to be more godly. And to do that, we need guidance. We need help. We need to change and we need to grow. And that only happens in relationship with each other by being a discipling church that makes strong families that change society. That's what we're going to see in the book of Titus. And I couldn't be more excited about it. Uh, I hope you will join us for the coming weeks uh, as we continue to dive into this letter together. Let me pray. Father, I am so thankful that you give us um, some really powerful examples here. Uh, One, just of the relationship between Paul and Titus that shows us what um, a loving discipleship relationship looks like. That shows us in order for change to happen out there in society, in community, in our world, um, it has to start here, in here, with us, with our relationships together, with our discipleship together uh, to you, Jesus. God, I thank you uh, that we're going to hear and read words that were written years and years ago but are still so needed and applicable today. 
through this book, God, I pray that you would just give us um, tangible, practical, practical guidance to grow in godliness, to grow to be more holy, to grow to be more sanctified, and to grow to be more like Jesus together. God, I pray that we would be submitted to you today in a special way. I pray that you would grow our desire to grow in godliness, make us want that more uh, than we might right now. Lord, we just look forward, look forward to you uh, growing us as a church, changing us as a church, um, growing us as disciples of Christ together. We love you and we honor you together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.